for tonight is to take us from where we were this morning in terms of the understanding of the Eucharist and bring it up to the present day. Needless to say, 1,500 or more years of history condensed into a one-hour lecture is a little bit of a stretch, but we'll do what we can. In the early centuries, we've already seen a couple of basic approaches to the liturgy. We saw, for instance, that Christ was understood to be the host and the dispenser of the meal. This is something that comes out of the institution narratives themselves. That's what we see in the account of the Last Supper. This is what we see in the Didache in slightly different language when in 9.3 we hear that Christ is the one who brings life and knowledge. Or in 10.2, Christ, the holy name, dwells in our hearts, giving us knowledge, faith, immortality, which are revealed by wisdom. Or in 10.3, the Eucharist is spiritual food and drink, which brings eternal life through Christ. Again, a lot of this we've seen comes very much out of the Johannine tradition. The Didache is certainly very close to John, and itself come, which itself comes out of wisdom literature. And again, this is something that we saw earlier today. <coughs> the other direction in which the early understanding Eucharist is expressed is the notion of Eucharist, the Eucharist as sacrifice, uh, which comes especially from the book of Hebrews. Although we saw the Didache already in chapter 14, already calls the Eucharist the sacrifice and quotes that text from Malachi 1.10, turning it, turning it into a command. We also saw in 1 Clement, chapters 40 to 44, where the Old Testament sacrificial order is understood to be a type of the New Testament sacrificial order. And this is where we drew the connection between the Eucharist and the so-called Toda sacrifice, or sacrifice of praise, or as Philo, the Greek-speaking Jew, translated the term Toda, Epharistia. So Epharistia and sacrifice are two sides of the same coin. Epharistia is part of the Jewish understanding of the concept of sacrifice. And so from the Didache on, the Eucharist is seen as the sacrifice of the church. We have also seen how central the liturgy was in the first centuries. During that whole period of persecution, the one thing that was illegal for the church to do was to gather. Christianity was an illegal assembly. The Romans didn't care what you believed in, but they got very upset when you had illegal assemblies. And despite that, the one thing that early Christians always did and insisted on doing was to gather for the Eucharistic liturgy, which they did at peril of their life. And the remarkable thing is, is that as central as the Eucharistic liturgy was in the life of the early Christians, we find virtually no literature about the Eucharist. There is no literature giving reflection, you know, a Eucharistic theology explaining what the Eucharist means. We've got a few liturgical texts. We've looked at some of them. 
the Didache, Apostolic Tradition, Adai and Mari, which is an early third century Syrian Eucharistic prayer, a few descriptions like Justin Martyr's apology, the first apology, 65 and 67, where he describes what, go, what goes on, but no theology of liturgy as such. You know, no reflection, and, and partly this is simply because, I mean, Christians were doing the liturgy a long time before they actually thought about it. You know, even the New Testament texts, uh, you know, with, that have a Eucharistic coloring are already written in a context of a church which was already celebrating the Eucharist. But there's no kind of systematic theology, no commentaries on the liturgy from this early period. Partly, this is due to the so-called disciplina arcana, the fact that the mysteries had to be concealed from all but the initiates. I mean, this may, this may be the reason why we don't have a written record of, you know, kind of explaining or, you know, theologizing about the liturgy. In this early period, catechumens, the non-baptized, could not even assist at the Eucharist, and what explanations were given were given only after baptism. And here again, and we see this very clearly in the fourth century, only in closed sessions. Those sessions explaining the mysteries were open to the newly baptized, not to the catechumens who were not yet baptized, as well as to any of the baptized who wished to come. It is only in the fourth century, then, that we find for the first time an abundance, in fact, of so-called mystagogical literature. We have the writings and the sermons on the mysteries by people like Cyril of Jerusalem, Ambrose in Milan, Theodore of Mopsuestia in Asia Minor, John Chrysostom in Antioch. And these are precisely texts of pre- and post-baptismal instruction. And especially the post-baptismal catechesis, although John Chrysostom delivered them before the baptism, but the others were all given after baptism, were precisely explanations, commentaries about the liturgy, about baptism and the Eucharistic liturgy, given to explain the mysteries to these new converts, these new, uh, these neophytes. Again, we have to be aware of the historical context because in the fourth century, as Christianity becomes not only legal, but very quickly the official religion of the empire, you have a mass of new converts, many of whom are only nominal. So the whole tenor obviously uh, changes. And the purpose of these mystagogical catechesis was to explain the meaning of the mysteries of baptism and of Eucharist, but also, and one senses this very strongly in all of these, to instill a feeling of fear and awe in these new candidates. You know, this is serious business. You know, and it is to this period that belong this newly developing, you know, uh, theology kind of fear and awe with res regard to the Eucharist. Don't you know that this is the body and how holy it is and how you must prepare yourself and be worthy and so on. Uh, you know, this was very much part of the dynamic at this time. 
This marks a change, therefore, in Eucharistic piety. In particular, the presupposition before the fourth century certainly was that all the baptized were worthy to receive communion. It was simply expected that when you went to church, when you went to the Eucharist, which was a meal, you ate. You know, that was the purpose of the Eucharistic assembly. Now, and this happens gradually, but already beginning in the fourth century, this is turned on its head. And the presumption comes to be that Christians, even baptized Christians, were unworthy. And this is particularly strong in monastic circles. Monasticism was a movement that, you know, I mean, there are traces of it before the fourth century, but really took off in the fourth century after the persecutions had ceased and was a new form of martyria, of witnessing a radical Christianity. Monasticism was seen as the angelic life because the monk was the one who gave up all the you know, comforts and material goods of this world. And monks had tremendous influence in this period in the theological disputes. I mean, they literally became the new martyrs. So that within a few centuries, and certainly after iconoclasm, uh, the, the episcopate became monasticized. When one looked for candidates for the episcopacy, one looked to the monks because they were the ones who lived, the, lived this radical Christian lifestyle, who gave everything up, who were not afraid of facing down emperors and, and, uh, and civil authorities. Uh, they were the ones who often took the lead in theological disputes. So it was a natural kind of progression. But one of the results of this is that it left the ordinary laity somehow as second-class citizens. And this is very much reflected in kind of the piety and in particular the Eucharistic piety that develops after the fourth century. Now, before we turn to the interpretation of the liturgy that one finds in these catechesis and subsequently, we have to say a few words about the methods of interpretation which were applied to the liturgy because that did not come from nowhere. The method of interpretation that is applied to the sacraments, to liturgy, to the Eucharist, and to baptism by these fourth century preachers was taken directly from the methods of biblical exegesis which had already been developed in previous centuries, particularly in the Alexandrian school of Clement and Origen, who are really the fathers of biblical exegesis. Now, what made it possible for these methods of biblical exegesis to be applied to the liturgy is that liturgy, like scripture, was understood to be a source of theology a source, therefore, of knowledge and communion with God, just as scripture were. It was, therefore, a privileged source of revelation in a way analogous to Holy Scripture. Now, the principles of scriptural exegesis, which they applied in the fourth century to the liturgy, was that scripture, and by scripture in this period, we mean the Old Testament, 
Scripture has both a literal and a spiritual meaning. In other words, it has several layers of meaning. And this principle is embodied even within the Bible, within the New Testament. In John 5.39, for example, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that witness to me. In other words, the basic principle within the New Testament is that scripture, the Old Testament, is speaking about Christ. Or Luke 24, 27, quote, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the Old Testament was perceived already by the, in the New Testament as referring to Christ, as being fulfilled in Christ, and thus as receiving its true meaning in Christ. It's precisely the opposite of the way in which biblical scholars read the Old Testament today. You know, we read the New Testament in light of the Old. They did the opposite. They saw Christ in the Old Testament. Or, and St. Paul uses this principle all the time in Romans 5.14, where he says that Adam is a type of the one who was to come. You know, the whole theory of recapitulation of Jesus as the new Adam is based on an understanding that Christ is the one who is the new Adam, who recreates humanity. So Adam, as the first man, is a type already, a prefiguration of the true humanity which is brought about in the incarnation of Christ. The spiritual meaning of the text is not secondary to its literal sense, but is of at least equal importance. In other words, according to this principle, you cannot understand the Old Testament except in light of Christ. You may read it, obviously, literally as a historical record and so on, but ultimately its true meaning is revealed only in Christ. I mean, that's a basic principle of Christian scriptural exegesis. To make a long story short, by the fourth century, but certainly before the method comes to be applied to the liturgy, the spiritual sense of scripture has been further subdivided into three different levels, which I have written on this pad here. The first level is the so-called allegorical level, which interprets the Old Testament as referring to Christ and to the church. In a sense, this is the dogmatic level, uh, imagery such as Adam being a type of Christ or Moses as a type of Christ are the obvious example of this kind of exegesis. A second level is the tropological level, which relates the allegorical sense to our Christian life. It's the moral level. You want to see a million examples of that, read the canon of St. Andrew of Crete, where every possible figure, good and bad, in the Old Testament is held up to us as either a model to imitate or one to avoid. A third approach, or a third level of meaning, 
is the anagogical level, which refers to the final consummation in the kingdom of God and to our present contemplation of this future and heavenly reality, the eschatological level. We're familiar with that. Remember the, the dry bones reading on, you know, why did they pick that? It's just a bunch of dry bones in the desert. In its original sense, it referred to the resurrection of Israel and not to the universal resurrection or any Christian sense at all. But clearly, it was picked up and picked up very early by the Christians as a symbol, as a, you know, as, as a type of the of future resurrection, not just the resurrection of Israel, but in fact, the universal resurrection. That's why we read it when we do. Now, how then, and I'm grossly oversimplifying it, but I hope you can, are able to follow uh, the, what my point. Now, when this is applied to the liturgy, why is this applied to the liturgy? Well, the Old Testament only foreshadows the future. But in the church, in its liturgy, the final fulfillment is already present and can be experienced. The Eucharist is already the banquet of the kingdom. Baptism is already the victory over death and the passage to redeemed life. And the liturgy is the way by which we experience all these things. And so the rites of the liturgy are able to be interpreted in this multiple level of meaning because in the worldview of the period, everything had more than one meaning. You know, that was no problem. That was part of the worldview. It, you, it, it's not either or, it's both and. Just like scripture had more than one meaning, so now the liturgical texts, uh, and excuse me, let me re rephrase that. The liturgical rites have similarly more than one meaning. Because one of the remarkable things about these commentaries is that what they're giving these multiple levels of meaning to is not the texts of the liturgy, not the Eucharistic prayers, not the litanies, but the external aspects of the liturgy, the processions, the actions, the visible. The texts are allowed to speak for themselves and are really rarely given a symbolic interpret or a spiritual interpretation, but it is the external aspects of the rite which serve as the fodder for the imagination of these uh, preachers and commentators. Each commentator then used these various methods, but each tended to emphasize one or another aspect over another. And just as with biblical exegesis, there were two tendencies in the method of interpretation. The first approach is the so-called Antiochene, and I put that in quotation marks because not everybody from Antioch followed this approach, and certainly there were others from outside of Antioch who did. But this broadly defined Antiochene approach, reflecting also the Antiochene school of biblical exegesis, tended to stress the more literal and historical aspect. The focus in scriptural interpretation is on the history of salvation and on the humanity of Christ. 
when this method is applied to the liturgy, the liturgy comes to be seen as representing Christ's earthly ministry. This is where you get the idea which Father Daniel mentioned last night and about which I'll be speaking more a little bit later, that the great entrance is the funeral procession of Christ. The other approach, and I'll come back to the Antiochene in a few minutes, the other approach is the so-called Alexandrian approach. Again, broadly defined also. Which comes directly out of the spiritualizing tendencies of Clement and Origen. Their stress is on the anagogical. The Antiochene stresses the allegorical, the, the uh, uh, Alexandrian, the anagogical or eschatological. The liturgy in this tradition represents the ultimate mystery that is God. And the best example of that is Dionysius, or pseudo-Dionysius, in his book, The Ecclesiastical Hierarchies. The method is purely anagogical. Quote, the sensible rites are the image of the intelligible realities. They lead there and show the way to them. In other words, reality is spiritual, the material reality is useful only in so far as it points to a higher spiritual reality. You can obviously, there's a lot of Platonism and Platonist uh, worldview implied obviously in this approach. Reality is spiritual, the material is only the way by which the spiritual reality is communicated. Thus the material in and of itself has very little value. I mean, it really is Manichaean in that sense. The liturgy, therefore, is an allegory of the soul's progress from the divisiveness of sin in this earthly life to divine communion through a process of purification, illumination, perfection, which are imaged forth in the rites. Let me just read a couple of brief passages. This is from Dionysius, uh, from the ecclesiastical hierarchy of Dionysius. Let us leave to the imperfect these signs, which I have said are magnificently painted in the entrances of the sanctuaries. They will suffice for their contemplation. As for us, in our contemplation of Holy Communion, let us pass from the effects to the causes. The entire liturgy is perceived as an ascent from the material to the spiritual, from the multiplicity of lower existence to the unity of the divine. The holiest act in the liturgy for him is the fraction, where the one, where quote, the one is symbolically multiplied and divided. Again, the scheme is a kind of, uh, you know, originistic scheme of fall and return, where, you know, originally everything exists as one, and when it falls, it gets broken up into uh, little pieces, and so the salvation is kind of putting all this back together. It's a kind of philosophical 
uh, scheme. Uh, <clears throat> the problem with, uh, and not liturgical problem, but in general with Dionysius, for example, is that for him, the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation is only offering us an ethic, it's a philosophical model. The purpose of the incarnation is to, uh, of Christ, is to present us with a model to imitate. And salvation is achieved through ethical perfection, imitation of this perfect model who is Jesus Christ. Again, there's been big arguments about that. You can read a whole series of articles in the quarterly about 10 years ago uh, between Father Galitzin and Father Paul Weshe, who argue about this point. It's a very controversial issue. Now, let's go back to the Antiochene method. This is synthesized in the writings of Theodore of Mopsuestia, who is one of those important late 4th, early 5th century mystagogues. His basic approach is allegorical or typological. In scriptural exegesis, I repeat, the, the stress is on the events and persons in the Old Testament as relating to Christ. In the liturgy, it's the connection of the rites with the historical Jesus. So baptism, for example, is seen primarily as a reenactment of the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, or secondarily as the reenactment of his death and resurrection based on the Romans 6 uh, passage. The Eucharist is a memorial of the Last Supper. That's pretty traditional. Is a memorial of the earthly ministry of Christ. Now no longer not just his death, which is the earliest level that one finds in the institution narratives, but the earthly ministry of Christ and a prefiguration of the heavenly liturgy. This is the approach that one finds in a number of writers, Isidore of Pelusium, died in 435, Cyril of Jerusalem, and also John Chrysostom, writing in Antioch. But again, it is synthesized in the catechetical homilies of Theodore of Mopsuestia, he died in 428, so in the first half of the fifth century. And let me just read a couple of brief passages from the homilies of Theodore of Mopsuestia. Every time then there is performed the liturgy of this awesome sacrifice, which is the clear image of the heavenly realities, we should imagine that we are in heaven. Faith enables us to picture in our minds the heavenly realities as we remind ourselves that the same Christ who is in heaven, who died for us, rose again, and ascended to heaven, is now immolated under these symbols. So when faith enables our eyes to contemplate the commemoration that takes place now, we are brought again to see his death, resurrection, and ascension, which have already taken place for our sake. And then just a short passage where he describes the great entrance. By means of the signs, we must see Christ now being led away to his passion, and again later when he is stretched out on the altar to be immolated for us. When the offering which is about to be presented is brought out in the sacred vessels, on the patens and in the chalice, 
you must imagine that Christ our Lord is being led out to his passion. These signs point to the invisible ministering powers which were present at the time of the saving passion and performed their ministry as they did throughout our Lord's incarnate life. So you must regard deacons as representations of the invisible ministering powers when they carry up the bread for the offering. So the deacons are the angels. You ever see the stole of deacons that have the inscription, holy, holy, holy? That's the angelic song. That's where this comes from. They bring up the bread and place it on the altar to complete the representation of the passion. So from now on, we should consider that Christ has already undergone the passion and is now placed on the altar as if in a tomb. So the image of the burial procession and the altar as a tomb comes from Theodore of Mopsuestia. All this, he says, takes place amid general silence. For since the liturgy has not yet begun, it is appropriate that everyone should look on in fearful recollection and silent prayer while this great and august body is brought and laid out. For when our Lord died, the disciples also withdrew and remained for a while in a house in great recollection and fear. There is no yet, you know, there is no yet a great entrance procession. It's still deacons bringing the things they need for the liturgy to the altar. There is no cherubic hymn. There is no, you know, none of the hoopla uh, that develops around the great entrance later. But the symbolic interpretation lays the groundwork for, you know, a kind of a phenomenal elaboration of the great entrance. And that's what we'll see in later uh, Byzantine practice. The liturgy, therefore, becomes a dramatic reenactment of the passion of Christ. And in later commentaries which adopt this approach, you know, that's expanded in both ways, and the liturgy becomes a dramatic reenactment, in fact, of all of Christ's life, from his birth all the way to his resurrection, ascension, descent of the Holy sitting at the right hand of the Father, etc. Well, I'll have more to say about that in a few minutes. One factor that influences this historical and pictorial dimension of the interpretation of the liturgy is the influence of Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the fourth century becomes a center of pilgrimage. Before the fourth century, before, uh, before Constantine and after the destruction of Jerusalem in, the, in 70 AD, it was just a hick town. There was a bishop in Jerusalem uh, but, you know, he was under uh, Caesarea, in, uh, under the bishop of Caesarea in Palestine. You know, it was not a significant place until Constantine uh, kind of made it the centerpiece of his building program. And they started building, you know, huge basilicas and churches over all the supposed sites of the events of Christ's life. And this had a tremendous impact on liturgy. It led, for example, to the historicization of the rites, in particular Holy Week. I mean, every Christian tradition you know, owes a great deal of its Holy Week services to what we see in Jerusalem in the fourth century as described in the accounts of people like Egeria, 
uh, the fourth century nun who wrote a travelogue for her sisters back home in Spain or Gaul and describes in great detail what they did there. Every church, I mean, all our processions of Holy Week, many of our services are inspired by this. It had strong impact on the Eucharist, on baptism, and more than anything else, on the church year, and certainly had some impact on this kind of pictorial and historical approach and understanding of the liturgy as well. Now, again, we don't have a great deal of time, so I'd like to move right away to the Byzantine approach, because everything we've said so far is pre-Byzantine, you know, and is common to, in fact, all the Eastern churches, and to some extent also in the West as well. In Byzantine practice, until the 8th century, it was essentially the Alexandrian approach, mystagogical, eschatological, which predominated. This is clear, for example, in the first properly Byzantine commentary on the liturgy written by Maximus the Confessor around 630, so in the first half of the seventh century. This is a treatise addressed to monks, and you always have to consider the audience uh, when reading these early texts so that you can understand where the author is coming from and what he's trying to accomplish. Its purpose is to combine a monastic spiritual tradition with the mystagogical, to show the importance of the liturgy for monastic life. Because there was a trend in monasticism, strongly influenced by originism, which had little use for Eucharistic piety. Primitive monasticism, remember, was a lay phenomenon. They did not have priests or bishops in monasteries. Uh, you know, when they needed to go to the Eucharist, they would go to the nearby town for the Eucharist. But since they were holy and angelic, you know, the temptation was to feel that they didn't need to do what all these people in the cities were doing. And since they were able, through contemplation, to achieve communion with God, somehow, you know, sacramental, liturgical, you know, in Eucharistic piety were not that important. And so what Maximus is trying to do is to correct this trend, which had little use for Eucharistic piety. He's thus trying, in one sense, to correct the excessive spiritualism of people like Dionysius or Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. It's for this reason that over and over again in this treatise, he calls Dionysius the master. Dionysius was held in very high regard by these monks, and so, you know, uh, you know uh, Maximus accepts that and uses him while at the same time trying to correct or, you know, kind of divert their focus to a more po in a more positive direction, one more congenial to Eucharistic piety. Maximus approaches the liturgy on two levels. For every part of the liturgy that he comments on, he gives a general sense, genikos in Greek, and a particular or idikos sense. Gives two explanations, therefore, for everything, every part of the liturgy and the church building about which he comments. In the general sense, 
the mystery of salvation is referred to the entire cosmos by means of typology. So, for example, the first entrance, the entrance of the bishop and the clergy into the people, quote, represents the first coming into the world of the Son of God, Christ our Savior in the flesh, the incarnation. You know, the bishop comes into the church vested. He is the image of Christ. So this becomes the, the symbolic of the incarnation. That's in chapter 8 of his commentary. But then the liturgy is referred to each individual. Quote, the people entering the church with the bishop symbolize unbelievers being converted from ignorance and deception to the recognition of God. And believers changing over from evil and ignorance to goodness and knowledge. In a sense, that's a tropological sense, but applied to every individual. This is our conversion. We leave the world behind. We enter into the church, thus kind of symbolizing our conversion from darkness to light, from ignorance to knowledge. The gospel represents, in the first sense, the gospel and the descent of the bishop from the throne. The expulsion of the catechumens and the penitents, you know, that section of the liturgy, represents the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. A very eschatological image. It also represents the shutting out of the visible world, getting rid of thoughts which still incline toward the earth, turning the mind to a vision of spiritual things. By this time, the Cherubic hymn, this part of the liturgy, let us lay aside all earthly cares that we may receive the king of all who comes up born, etc., etc. So, kind of, again, our, in a sense, our, the tropological sense, our moral conversion. Everything has these two levels. And let me just read uh, two more brief passages from Maximus. The holy church of God, the building, is a figure and image of the world, which is composed of visible and invisible things. It is divided into a place reserved for the clergy and assistants, which we call the sanctuary, and a place accessible to all the faithful, which we call the nave. Nevertheless, the church is essentially one, not divided because of the variety of its parts. The wise thus glimpse the universe of things being brought into existence by God's creation, divided between the spiritual world, containing incorporeal intelligent substances, and the corporeal world, the object of sense, as if they were all another church, not built by hands, but suggested by the ones we build. Its sanctuary is the its sanctuary is the world above, allotted to the powers above. Its nave, the world below, assigned to those whose lot it is to live in the senses. The Holy Church of God is an image of just the sensible world by itself. The sanctuary reminds one of the sky. The dignity of the nave reflects the earth. Likewise, the world can be thought of as a church. The sky seems like a sanctuary, and the cultivation of land can make it resemble a temple. So that's the general sense, this cosmic idea of the church. This is the theoretical basis for our church architecture, by the way. That dome, that large central dome representing the vault of heaven comes right out of this vision 
of Maximus, of the church as an image of the world. But then he applies it also to every individual. God's holy church, he says, is a symbol of man. Its soul is the sanctuary, the sacred altar, the mind, and its body is the nave. A church is thus the image and likeness of man who is made in the image and likeness of God. The nave is used as a body should be used for exemplifying moral philosophy, in other words, the moral life. From the sanctuary, the church leads the way to natural contemplation spiritually as man does with his soul, and she embarks in mystical theology through the sacred altar as man does through his mind. In the 8th century, so about 100 years after Maximus, we have a commentary on the liturgy by Germanus, Patriarch of Constantinople, who died in 733. And what Germanus does is to, and he quotes extensively from Maximus, is to combine this more Alexandrian, mystical approach to with an Antiochian perspective, much more historicizing, focusing on the human ministry of Christ. So, for example, in speaking of the great entrance, Germanus begins with something very much like what you'd find in Maximus. By means of the processions of the deacons and the representation of the fans, which are in the likeness of the seraphim, the cherubic hymn signifies the entrance of all the saints and righteous ahead of the cherubic powers and the angelic hosts who run invisibly in advance of the great king Christ, a kind of very eschatological image consistent with the meaning of the rite that we find, for example, in the cherubic hymn and in the prayer of the proscomedi that prayer of offering which is now read at the conclusion of the litany after the great entrance. Originally that prayer was read during the singing of the cherubic hymn until it was replaced by a, you know, a, a private prayer in fact of uh, you know, a, a prayer of humble access by the clergy for their preparation for the celebration of the Eucharist. That prayer let no one bound by the desires and pleasures of the flesh.